This is Coda Radio, episode 331, for October 29th, 2018. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Coder Radio, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show, taking a pragmatic look at the art and business of software development and its related technologies. I'm over here in the now forever gray Pacific Northwest. My name is Chris, and joining us is our host, established in the always sunny, always temperate conditions of the beautiful Florida. It's our host, the one and only Mr. Dominic. Hello, Mike. How so you, sir? Oh, it's been a while, Jar Jar. Oh, it's been a while, Jar Jar. Oh, I've missed you so much, Jar Jar, so much. Why don't you get the hell out of here and get Mike on? Because uh, we got a show to do, all right? You show, yeah, yeah. What a what a what an attention seeker! I tell you what, I was gonna say something worse, but I'll just keep it PG here at the intro. You know what I mean? But that Jar Jar, I don't trust him. Bit of an attention yeah. seeker. Don't trust him. Yeah, you get know, he's just a just a bad guy doing bad things. I, I agree. You got to get him out of there. Get out of here. Got to get him out of there. Hey, you know, uh, since I didn't want to curse uh, for Jar Jar's sake uh, at the top of the show, how about right here at the top of the show, I just give a real quick uck you to the Twitters. I am so sick mm-hmm. of Twitter. You, you just casually say something the other day, and now I've got three days worth of crap in my feed. That's my bad. <laughs> I ended up deleting the original tweet. Like, oh, you that did? Because I was like, okay. I don't know how we got here, but you're that's like, not what I said. Like, bail, bail, bail. Yeah, you, I'm just like, you know what? I can't reason with you guys. You know, like, it's it's funny how like uh, a just slightly incorrectly stated tweet, which is easy to do in a super short format, or like somebody who's just not even familiar with a certain knowledge domain asks a question because they've just discovered this domain exists, and the and the crap storm that it will generate for days on Twitter. Yeah. Whew, I got to tell you, that was, that was, that like, was oh boy, Mike stepped in it. So you know what we have you know to do? Yeah, yeah. We, have, we, ju- we have to retreat to the show, is all I was going to say. We That's just, what we do. We retreat to the show. We got a good batch of feedback up in here. Got some cute follow-up. Uh, this uh, little company, this little upstart called IBM, just purchased this other little upstart you may have heard of called Red Hat. Might Let's talk pour about one out that. for Red Hat. <laughs> uh, we got some GitHub news. And then if we have time... I'm going to take one more crack at a golden topic here in the Coda Radio show, the remote workers. New study out showing remote workers are outperforming office workers. And I know we've talked about this over the whole history of this show, but now here I am finding myself an employee of a company based out of Texas. And uh, I am now a remote employee and no longer – see, when we've talked about this before on the show, I've been the boss and everybody's been working remotely for me. Now I'm working remotely for somebody else. Whole other side of the coin, my friend. Totally different set of experiences. Let me tell you. So if we have a chance, I'll get to that in the show too. Now we probably should. Now that I, now that I no, 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 set I it up should. so much. I'm sorry about that. I just got a little carried away. Let's start with Jacob's feedback. Uh, he's the Marine that wrote in um, a while ago on the show. He says, uh, "Hey guys, I'm the Marine that asked uh, for advice with zero experience. After listening to, oh, hold on, hamburger menus in the way. After listening to your advice, I put myself out there and I applied." I'm currently relocating to Florida to a government contracting company as a C-sharp and Rust developer. Thank you again. 
Well, now that's a success story. Congratulations, Jacob. That's great to hear that. Uh, maybe uh, maybe go uh, look up Mike. I hear Florida is just all one really small. Everybody down there knows each other. It's really we all just know each other. Yeah, and you know we all have alligators. It's a good time. But yeah, I think we need a bell for this one. It's Coda Radio success story. I agree. I agree. Uh, yeah, everybody under forty in Coda Radio has to, or in Coda Radio in uh, in uh, Florida has to stick together. I, I believe, otherwise, oh. <laughs> although there, you know what, there's so few of us. Oh, I know, I know. Hey, wait a minute now. Hold on. My this pastebin link says uh, uh, no good. This one from Robin about uh, setting you straight on WPF. Did this go away? Says no good. Did it go away? I well, I, I can give you. Yeah, the give gist. us the gist because so, the so, not I, last week, I had stated that uh, .NET Core did not work with WPF on Windows, which it turns out is not true. It works with WPF only on Windows. So the deal is basically this, and this is kind of what Robin wrote in to tell us. Um, WPF does not work on other platforms, but it does work on Windows. But you can have .NET Core in a WPF app. Oh, Okay, yeah, so there's so some nuance there. <laughs> there's there's like a lot of nuance. So basically, that's how things like Avalonia work, right? Avalonia UI, which is a uh, cross-platform framework, um, it will under the hood use WPF controls on Windows, but still use .NET Core, or it can still use .NET Core. And uh, Robin shared some good links that I will throw in the show notes uh, about kind of where Microsoft says .NET Core is going. All in all, it is going to be the future, or that is their stated goal. Um, the area of uh, error in this case on my part was stating that .NET Core could not be used with WPF on Windows. That's not the case. It can, but it can only be used with WPF on Windows, which it, I, I still think is ridiculously confusing. But It is a little, yeah. Um, basically, the, the, the UI framework of WPF it does not exist on any of the platforms. Right. Is the, that's Okay, that's what I'm grokking. All right. Well, so uh, it's good to get the clarification, I suppose. Boy, that seems <clears throat> sort of limited, but it actually kind of makes sense. That's how it would be. So thank you, Robin, for writing in. If you want to give us some feedback, uh, there's, a couple, there's a couple of ways. The most official channel is the contact page at coder.show slash contact. There's also the subreddit, which I try to check before each show. And I know Mike's in there several times during the week, too. And of course, when Twitter isn't blowing up, uh, you can also uh, at Dumanuku and I'm at Chris Les if you want to uh, tag us on there. So I, I wasn't going to bring this up, but you put this in the show and I didn't want to trigger you. But we do have a new release from the cute folks. It's Design Studio 1.0. Big release. Uh, and they're hyping it, man. They're hyping it hard. And, you know, to me, the uh, cute outsider, it does look pretty good for building some effective workflows for cute and QML. I mean, it's, it looks good, but obviously I haven't. Tried yeah. It. It looks interesting. Uh, basically, it's a design tool that runs on Windows and I believe Mac. You can, I mean, they have a lot of talk about taking like Photoshop files and generating QML. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. Basically, you have designers who might design your interface and you want to kind of create a, I don't even know what to call it, not an asset pipeline, but kind of like a UX pipeline for them to generate some layouts for you. Right. For you to kind of uses a baseline. Um, and then it does live the, previews and it'll do like, a, it'll do a frame yeah. rate counter to give you an idea of how it's actually going to perform. It'll do how zoom in. Perform. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I have not gotten my hands on it yet. Um, but certainly if this works, this would be pretty cool. Uh, you know, anything that makes the development process faster, particularly when somebody hands you a giant Photoshop file with a million layers and you just like want to get a baseline 
you know, layout template to work with. The other aspect that. of it that's interesting is the timeline-based animations, which is a timeline or a keyframe-based editor that lets designers create um, animations without having to write any code. Um, that's pretty nice because you could see how if you want just even a basic proof of concept animation, this would be a useful tool. I mean, it might, might not be super sophisticated, but relaying an idea before you start spending tons of time building something is extremely valuable. And this thing has a lot of new features they're adding to the timeline-based animations. Yeah, I think at worst, this is going to be a pretty good prototyping tool to say, well, this is something like we could do, and then maybe you have to go back and yeah. you know, do the animations for real. But in, in, but in the meantime, you're, you're building Qt and Q, QML, and you do, I, I don't know about this Photoshop bridge, like that's the part that seems the most dicey to me. <laughs> they, they label it as import your graphics designs from Photoshop, create reusable components directly from Photoshop. Um, okay, maybe if they're providing very specific templates that you start with in Photoshop, I could buy that. I could see that working maybe. It's a pretty cool feature if it does work. Kind of makes me wish like I could have like a research team that I would be like, hey, go try this. Come back, report back to the show. But if anybody out there has a chance to let us know, do contact us because the Photoshop bridge and the time-based animations and the cute live preview stuff really seems pretty slick. Is there anything else that jumped out at you about it? You know, not really. I mean, there's a level of magicalness going on here that we've seen lots of these tools over the years. We've been doing these shows for different platforms. I would be very curious to see how it actually performs. Um, but certainly, I think there's, particularly in, in the cute space, um, an opportunity for this to be very useful. Yeah, yeah. And for prototyping, could be particularly yeah. invaluable. All right, well, moving on to a little breaking news here. This is CNN Breaking News. Uh, this is uh, a release on the Swift announcements forms. Uh, we at Apple are making it a priority to support high-quality tooling for all Swift developers, including those working on non-Apple platforms. We want to collaborate with the open-source community and focus our efforts on building common infrastructure that can be shared by Xcode and other editors and other platforms. To that end... I am excited to announce that we are going to start a new open source project for Swift and C family language services based on the language server protocol. We have chosen to adopt Lisp so we can benefit from its active community and wide adoption across other editors and platforms. This means that Visual Studio Code, Atom, Sublime Text, or whatever your favorite editor happens to be can use the same service as Xcode and any improvements we, we make to the service will benefit them all. Wow. That's uh that's great. Um that's that happened uh this announcement came out because, I think cuz of the delay about 10 days ago or so yep. 14 days ago when we were recording this. Uh have you had a chance to sit with this? Have you sat with this monumental announcement? You know, I I've been trying to get more uh context for it and it seems pretty straightforward. They are trying to make sure that Swift is you know, Swift and basically the Apple development ecosystem are not completely locked down, which feels weird and shocking. But, you know, there are lots of people, if you kind of read around about this, who've been trying to implement their own LSP language service because they just can't, you know, whatever. They want to work in Vim. They want to work in some other tool. Yeah, whatever the tool is. I mean, everybody, to each his own. But I don't know. This is, I, I find this weirdly surprising but good in a happy way. Yeah. Unlike certain other surprises we'll talk about oh. today. 
<clears throat> you're 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 getting ahead of yourself there. You are. And to be super clear, if you're just like an if you just develop an Xcode, um, this will actually end up benefiting you in the long term as well. But the immediate benefits are probably going to be for folks who are like trying to, you know, write Swift and Vim. And if that sounds weird to you, keep in mind that there's things like Vapor, right? And the uh, even IBM. I forgot the name of their solution, but IBM has a Swift. Um, you know, don't call it Rails, but Swift like backend solution that you can run on Linux. So it's completely possible. So a couple of points of clarification: um, the LSP service will use SourceKit D to get its Swift specific. Uh, highlighting support or code completion support, those kinds of things. Um, <clears throat> there was a question asked in the forum if if they if the developers would be using lib syntax x to implement highlighting, but that would be. Um, it looks like probably not. It looks like what they're going to do is they're going to there'll essentially be a library that you can grab. The intention is for part of this uh, to replace the existing uh, library they're using today, um, and and really make it available to all editors, really, truly make something that's available to all editors. So you could have syntax highlighting in Visual Studio Code or Atom or like Mike uses uh, Emacs all the time. <laughs> all the time. Like, yeah, big Emacs. Oh, yeah. Hmm. There's some Google developers that are jumping in on this too, and they look like they're pretty pumped about this. They say Google is also very interested in contributing. We have a fair amount of work in this area to meet some of our internal needs. We're excited to see this moving forward. Huh. Isn't that interesting? Well, that'll be one to watch. But uh, if it pales in comparison to what feels like uh, uh, maybe one of the largest stories of the year, not just in open source, but of the year, some breaking news on Sunday. Got all the breaking news in the Coda Radio program today. IBM announces they're going to acquire Red Hat for uh, just a small amount of money, nothing nothing that much, just uh, a few billions, um, like 34 of them, which works out to be about $190 per share, which is a 60% premium over their Friday closing price before the announcement. <laughs> and wow. Red Hat will become part of IBM's hybrid cloud division with Jim Whitehurst, the CEO of Red Hat, reporting directly to IBM's CEO. You know, I I don't know. I you you kind of went through the gamut of reactions through Twitter, and I think one of your reactions was, I really didn't think it would be Red Hat first. In fact, I think the implication was you thought it'd be Canonical that sold first. <laughs> yeah, I sort of did. Yeah, isn't this something? And you got to wonder if it does mean that maybe Canonical is going to be more likely to be uh, an interesting purchase for maybe companies like Microsoft or Amazon. Or who Amazon, have, yeah. yeah. So what are your what is your what was your initial take on this when you like your, your first raw reaction when you saw this? Well, you know, I mean, full disclosure, I think this is pretty common, but it was a little bit of dread. It was a little bit of oh no, right. this is uh, this is. Um, I mean, there's and and I got to be clear, not I do not have that reaction to all acquisitions. Um, like the GitHub Microsoft acquisition, I was more like, huh. Well, this is interesting because there's a lot of rumors that GitHub was falling apart at the top and they needed new leadership. Hmm. They weren't like making enough money, to, right? Yeah. But when the Red Hat one gets announced, uh, yeah. I try to. I, here's here's the game I've tried to play. There's two things I've asked myself. Number one, who else would I rather it be? And number two, is the new owner better than the old owner for some of their various things that they have? Uh, and my sense to the second question is no, but my sense to the first question is I'm not sure who else I'd rather have buy them. Um, let's say 
I mean, who else would have the money to buy Red Hat? I guess, you know, 30... It, Amazon, Microsoft, I mean, all the big boys, but who would want to would be an interesting... Um, maybe Amazon, but, the, you know, the canonical Amazon marriage would make a lot more sense. Right. I think. Right. And also, still be terrible, but... Yeah. Although Red Hat's pretty big on there. I think, you know, I think Ubuntu may have it beat, but I, they don't release specifics, so it's hard well, to Red say. Red Hat's already public, too. Right, Red Hat was already a public company on, like, GitHub. It was... Yeah. You know, there's one thing, because I know, I know a handful of people who work at Red Hat, and there's one thing that I would say is consistent about a lot of people who work there is they went to go work at Red Hat because it was Red Hat, and they wanted to contribute to open source in a way that would actually make a difference. Because working at Red Hat, you were working on projects that would ship. And um, I just... I know a lot of people who are working there because it's Red Hat, not because it's IBM. And I don't know what that means for those engineers, what they're going to do. And I, I feel for them. Put yourself in, in their shoes just for a moment. A lot of them, the majority of them, found out about this via Twitter, the news, <laughs> Linux Action News. A couple of them found out via Linux Action News. It was not well communicated. And so when you have a bunch of employees there that, are super passionate about your unique company culture, which they're very proud of. Jim Whitehurst has written a book about it. And they're working there because of open source and wanting to be a player in open source and make a difference and contribute to open source in a way that will actually go out and ship. You got to figure there's going to be a certain amount of talent train after an acquisition like this. You got to figure that's something, given IBM's aggressive history of... uh you know, domestic layoffs and like aggressive offshoring of their consulting work, which is like I read somewhere seventy percent of their business now. Um, I don't even know if they'd see that as a problem. Yeah, so TechCrunch has an interesting take on this. Uh, Jonathan Jonathan Schieber over there says that uh, what the latest uh, thirty four billion dollar acquisition of Red Hat really tells us is that uh, IBM needs a way to save its f- failing Watson business. Uh, And this is an interesting take here. Watson, which is the business division focused on artificial intelligence, whose public claims were always really more marketing than actually market-driven, has not performed as well as IBM had hoped, and investors are losing their patience. There's also some critics, including analysts at the investment bank Jefferies, that have been skeptical about Watson's ability to deliver what IBM claims for over a year. And earlier this year, the online medical journal Stat reported that the Watson was giving clinicians recommendations for cancer treatments that were unsafe and incorrect based on the training data it had received from the company's own engineers and doctors. All of those woes were reflected in the company's latest earning calls where it reported falling revenues primarily from the cognitive solutions business, which includes Watson's artificial intelligence supercomputing services. So there's a few folks out there that have their take on this is... IBM made a big marketing bet on artificial intelligence and Watson. They did a whole blitz about Watson and it's not actually delivering real financial results. And so they need to get back to basics. They need to get back to the cloud. They need to get back to selling services. And of course, a lot of those services in the cloud are powered by Red Hat. What do you think of that? I mean, I think it's hard to say that this isn't a, uh, you know, this is anything but a shot at the cloud business. I hadn't heard that Watson was struggling so much revenue-wise. That's at least according to TechCrunch. I'll have a link in the show notes. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I think there's a lot of areas that they've invested over the years. Uh, I, I I am no expert on IBM, 
But having watched them just sort of tangentially since the PS2 was being sold by IBM since then, they've had my interest. Um, I believe that they they have lost their way. They have they became a sales and consulting company, to, and they went too far. They got too hooked on that sauce, and they didn't. What has IBM done recently? What have they done? You know, you can you can point to things that Amazon's done and Google's doing and Microsoft and Apple and even Oracle and the companies in that even that outer tier of large tech companies. But IBM, they've sold a lot of services. Um, but what else have they done? What's what's what comes to mind when you think of what IBM's done? All that comes to my mind is stuff they used to do. And well, my, yeah, they're. I mean, they're effectively a giant consultancy now, right? And my and my point is, and I'm not trying to trying to take anything away from them other than saying, in that light, it seems obvious that this is a desperation play. A sixty percent premium, huge mark. Yeah, that's crazy though. That's thirty four billion. Now, mind you, Red Hat is on track to make three billion this year. So <laughs> they got thirty four bill for the sale. Um, and it, in the way this was rushed out and the fact that the employees weren't informed when the culture management issues are massive with IBM, this is a huge issue for, or I mean, uh, Red Hat and now IBM, the fact that they weren't properly warned, the fact that this is a $34 billion acquisition, it kind of makes me wonder if there wasn't another interested party. And announced on a weekend, by the way. A Sunday, when I think they were planning. A Sunday. They were planning yep. to have a corporate meeting on Monday. And then uh, this came out on Sunday. And it started out as rumors, so then Red Hat just jumped on it on their Twitter account and confirmed it and posted the blog post. Um, seemed pretty rushed to me. Hmm. Strange. So, maybe, so what there's is this? Other, maybe there's other bidders. So do you see this as a another step towards consolidation, meaning do you think that other dominoes are now going to fall? It does, it does make me wonder what's next for Canonical as they're trying to go public, um, as they're trying to raise funding, maybe even look at selling. It makes me wonder what's the next move. And you have to figure that some of the platform providers that compete with IBM but have Red Hat VMs on their platform are a little nervous right now. And you have to figure that Microsoft's looking around going, God, look at Azure. We've got like 30% of these things. I mean, who knows what it is? They don't really often say. But we've got like 30% of these things running Ubuntu. Especially if you count the containers. If you look at the containers we're running, they're like 70% Ubuntu. This is this is a platform that's obviously critical to Azure making money. And it's obvious they will spend money to make Azure a success. So you got to figure, somebody over there is talking about this right now. Okay, if Microsoft buys Canonical, all I am going to do is hang out in Telegram and on uh, r slash Linux for about a week. And just watch. Well, what's watch worse? The rage. What's worse, IBM buying Red Hat or Microsoft buying Canonical? I would argue that Microsoft buying Canonical would be less of a threat to Linux in general. Uh, Red Hat is responsible for the GNOME shell. They are the primary stewards of GTK, System Oh, e, that's right. Pulse Audio, Fedora. Oh, who uses Fedora? Not that Canonical uh, doesn't make genuine contributions, but I actually have more faith that Microsoft would run them properly and the contributions they do make would continue. In fact, perhaps Microsoft would even resource them better. But in the case of IBM, what's the argument for IBM to continue developing Pipewire to to create a unified audio and video pipeline for the Linux desktop? What's the point? Why does IBM care about that if this is part of their hybrid cloud division? See, Red Hat did, and that's something Red Hat is working on. 
I don't I don't really see IBM being too fired up about that. Yeah, I mean maybe it's a little unfair to characterize IBM this way, but they really do feel like they've been focused on basically pumping up their consulting business and not developing products or projects in quite the same way as, you know, I would, I mean, for since we're comparing apples to apples, you know, a Microsoft who every week there's like a new major Microsoft product or announcement or open source thing, or, I mean, not that this is the Microsoft action show, but they're really doing a lot in the space right now. Yeah. Where with IBM, IBM. Yeah. I mean, they've ran some right. commercials, they've contributed code for sure, but yeah. And the other thing about it, about this whole, about this whole like Microsoft or whoever would buy Canonical, you have to figure with with well, Canonical, Canonical sell? with Canonical, their their business really is selling you know that server support and, and the server side. The desktop is almost kind of the desktop components on a bit are are, are I don't want to say autopilot because that that sells short the work that they do put into it. But they're they're um, they're based on upstream projects for the most part, right? So there's um. There's there's not a same required like they don't have to have a huge desktop division they can have a sustainable desktop division, so Canonical you could you could you could acquire Canonical and it would still make financial sense to run the desktop side of the of the shop. Red Hat has all of these really long term investments that are like fun um, foundational technologies like I said GTK but also others like Stratus Storage is something they're working on right now. There's these big ones in there that. I don't know. We'll see. The claim is that they're going to run as an independent operator for a while, at least. Yeah, that that always happens. So right? is this is this is this just how this is how it always was going to go? Is this it? I mean, is this what this was all about? Like in the '90s, what Red Hat represented and what Microsoft represented were so cornerstone to how I experienced technology. Microsoft was the bad guy and Red Hat was the rebels. And and now Microsoft is an open source citizen and Red Hat is going to be owned by the original establishment in technology. It's just really, it's really, um, it's kind of a, uh, it's kind of a womp womp and to a story. I mean, I realize the story's not over yet, but I don't know, yeah. all this, all this fuss. And then this is what we end up with is... Is Red Hat's gone? I mean, Mark Andreessen had a good post that came out this morning um, about how Red Hat was really one of the only successful, truly open source companies. And with them basically going, I mean, not basically, they are in fact being acquired by IBM, right? Um, you know, the only one other than them was Sun. And honestly, my initial reaction to this news was to pour one out for Java Duke. Because it's, it's, you know, it's the same thing. I mm. mean, it, it, I'm it, I'm not going to say if like IBM is worse than Oracle, but it's not good. I mean, we already see some of the shenanigans with the Java SDK agreement on the Oracle side. I can imagine Red Hat's contributions after a couple of years eventually starting to be much more focused on cloud, whatever that cloud, might be. but whatever it is that would actually like generate revenue for IBM. Now, I don't know. They are consulting. You know, who knows what, what their actual plan is, but I'm trying to think of another major company. That is, you know, of that late 90s, mid 90s, actually, kind of open sourcey generation that is still around and independent. Yeah. Hmm. I bet you I bet you there's a couple, but I just I'm not 
I'm they're not coming to mind. Like not yeah, not the scale. Blender. Blend, yeah, Blender is not not at the scale. scale. Yeah, yeah. I I I I really the more I think about it, the sadder I get, and I don't want to be. I keep trying to th- remind myself that IBM does have a great sales team, and uh, IBM is going to bring enterprise credibility to uh, Red Hat's offerings even more, um, and they'll be able to sell it as parts of huge packages. Red Hat believes that they are sitting on top of a $1 trillion market that they just can't address and that they need the resources of IBM to fully address that market. This is this is what they think. That's what Jim Whitehurst thinks, at least. Yeah, that's a very convenient thing to think. <laughs> <laughs> so, in other news, GitHub's now officially part of Microsoft, Chris. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, yeah. yeah. Good day. Ooh. Good. Yeah, with government approvals received, the acquisition announced in June is officially complete, and GitHub is now part of Microsoft. How do you, you know, how, how do you even follow any of this up? Like, we're just at a place now where this... Consolidation. Is, yeah, we're in a phase of consolidation. Maybe maybe it'll leave fertile ground for new upstarts. <laughs> I don't think so, though. <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah, I, I think we're... I, I think what's happening is an entire business cycle is basically ro- coming to its end, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I, I feel a bit of mourning. I don't know what it is, but there's a bit, there's a touch of sadness for it, which doesn't feel like an appropriate response. It feels like this doesn't really affect me. I shouldn't feel sad, but at the same time, it's it, I feel like there, it's an era that's passing, and uh, a special company that was unique is getting absorbed into a larger organization that, that quite frankly, um, has failed to impress for the last few years. I think their Watson stuff has smelled like bullshit from afar, a lot of us have yep. kind of found it. I mean, I think you and I have talked about it, how it just it's marketing hype. I think we've talked about that on this show. And yeah, it's... and so I just, they kind of, they, you know, I kind of lost faith in IBM. And now to see this, we'll see. We'll see where it goes. I just, uh, just don't know. And, you know, time will tell, as they say on these things. It could take years before anything major changes, to be honest. Oh, I would hope that they would be you know, respectful of the community and, and, and red and indeed red hat was making money. Right. So yeah. it's not like, yeah, it's not like this is a ship that's on fire. Right. Um, 30, $34 billion though. That, that took some serious effort on their part. That's IBM's it's very serious about this move. That's, <laughs> you know, you want to make sure you get a return on investment on $34 billion. Can I make, can I make, can I make a coder prediction? Yeah. I say canonical Amazon. If Canonical gets acquired, it'll be Amazon. If they try, if they treated them like uh, Zappos, that would be okay by me. That's not going to happen. No, it wouldn't. No, no, it wouldn't. They might let them work remote, though. <laughs> yeah. So uh, remote workers, according to an article over at Inc.com, are outperforming office workers. And uh, research shows that uh, the real issue comes down to employees being able to unable to concentrate at their desks. Uh, which is uh, that's an interesting reason. I'll tell you. Um, they have, I'll go through their reasons, and then I'll I'll will give you my thoughts here. They say productivity, uh, with no office distractions and greater autonomy, remote workers have the freedom to get more done. In fact, according to a nationwide survey, sixty five percent of workers said that remote work would give their productivity a boost. Another eighty six percent said that working alone allows them to hit maximum productivity. Despite the distance, though, remote workers are actually sometimes the best teammates. This is another reason why productivity goes up. This is because the distance demands more communication. 
And without being able to lean on physical proximity, remote workers must reach out to one another frequently and with purpose. It leads to stronger collaboration. And then there's presence. Often office life is littered with absences, workers who are calling in sick, sneaking out early to run an errand, or even go to an event on time. But remote workers don't really need to make excuses. Since they're not tied to any office, they can design their workday to meet the demands of their lives. If they have a cold, they can work from home without spreading the germs to the office, too. There's just a, These are just a few reasons. Um, um, <laughs> no beer taps or hammocks are necessary, they write in the article. Uh, but I'll tell you, so my experience is sort of a mixed bag with remote work. So the first part is when I do go down to the uh, Keller office, I cannot work in a cubicle there. I can't like they have a few like open desks with like keyboard stands and second monitors and phones and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, oh, I got a power cord, USB-C. I'll just sit down and hook up. I, I, I just can't work like that. People be talking like they're all talking. They're just talking. Talk, 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 bitching, mostly bitching. Sometimes you'll hear somebody on the phone bitching, they're bitching. I don't want to hear any of that when I'm trying to work. They're talking and I need to focus. So uh, I had to go lock myself in a sound booth to go work. But here remotely, there are certain, um, there are certain things that you just don't get to participate in, like, uh, like a group lunch in the office. You're kind of left out of that kind of stuff or, um, Another example that drives me crazy right now is uh, they have a uh, a small packet loss about every 10 seconds on their network that mostly doesn't affect anything except for VoIP calls. <laughs> like web browsing, even watching video doesn't, doesn't impact it because everything buffers, everything pretty much sorts it out, TCP retransmits. But VoIP calls, which are not only UDP, so they don't retransmit, but also highly susceptible to packet loss, uh, so remote workers, uh, things get things cut out. You know, you can't you can't hear every ten seconds or so what what people at the office are saying, but they don't hear it because they're not on the side of the call against the dropout, so it doesn't get fixed. It you know it's not a concern. So there's small things to it, but then on the plus side, I today decided you know what, I'm going to start working at five a.m. I came in, I started working at five a.m. today, and I just have the office to myself. Nobody's here to to like steal that perfect morning productivity that I managed to achieve which is rare and prescient. And I was able to come in and have a morning to myself and uh, sip on my caffeinated beverage and get some work done with no interruptions for hours, which just wouldn't be possible in an office. So there's definitely those kinds of mixes and minuses, but the tools today, uh, Zoom meetings, Slack, Dropbox paper, Google Docs, they are so common and effective everybody's using the same core tools, whether rather you're on the land at the office or you're remote working in Alaska. Everybody's on the same tool set now. Everybody's using the same exact tools and applications to do everything. And that consistency has made a huge difference, especially when you're dealing with applications that don't require a VPN or don't require special crazy network security because, you know, these are services like Slack and Google Docs. Uh, and th- removing those barriers has made remote work as a remote employee much simpler, much easier. And I think it makes a big difference if you have a large percentage of your work base that's remote. If you're if you're one person who's remote or there's two or three people that are remote and everybody else is local, you're really the odd person out. And so if you have a large percentage that are remote, then there's certain accommodations that the company makes. Um, 
like putting HR files online in a, in a secured location instead of paperwork that you have to go in and fill out and then hand to them. There's little accommodations that can be made for employees to make that stuff smoother, to, to give them resources through web portals or whatnot that don't require physically going to somebody's office or uh, doing an inner office mail. Uh, anyways, so I'd say on the flip side of remote work now, um, I think my, my overall takeaway is as an employee, I am definitely more effective remote, definitely considerably more effective. When I go into the office, I am effective in a different way. So I, what, I, what I do is I batch. So when I go down into Texas, I batch meetings or certain types of conversations that I'd rather have in person or a, a, something, that, something that needed like a group of people at a table. I'll batch that stuff up. So it, it's a good kind of hybrid approach, I think, to remote work. And when I, when I kind of came to that conclusion and making it really easy – by following some of the travel hacks that have been sent into the show and by keeping a go bag down at the Linux Academy office, I can jump on a plane. It's a four-hour flight max. And uh, I, I can get – if I leave here in the morning, I can get down there mid-afternoon and actually get work done that day. Um, and that works pretty effectively. And that kind of flexibility is really nice to have. But it's still not a perfect – arrangement, I'd say, just because of things like VoIP calls sometimes can be a little crappy or, you know, um, if you have a room full of people that are having a meeting and you're the one remote worker who's joining that meeting, like you kind of have to sit there and wait till they remember to connect to you <laughs> and that kind of stuff. But uh, overall, it's nice to have the, the flexibility. Yeah, I'm still not sure what I think about it. Really? This article didn't change your mind at all or anything? Like it didn't change it. I mean, it's, I still, you know, I, I think it's what I'm doing because it's it's the best of all bad solutions. But I think remote work can, I'm not sure, right? I'm not sure if it, it either creates new issues or it can exacerbate issues that are already there. Well, let me tell you what I was but, struggling with. And, and I wonder if you've tried this when you're doing remote work. The biggest struggle for me was a drop in my energy level because I'm sitting around this place all day long in my office chair, going upstairs, going downstairs, just in this building all day. It's quiet. There's nobody I'm interacting with. And by the afternoon or sometimes even in the morning, if I start really early, my day, my energy starts to drop off. And one of the things I've been experimenting with is going, going to these various locations to work that are more public. Like this sounds very basic of me, but to be honest, I've found it's working really well is I, I got the Starbucks app, which I've never done this before. I got this, I got the Starbucks app on my phone and I order up some egg bites and some caffeine and I walk into the Starbucks, I grab it and I sit there and I work on their Google Wi-Fi for like 45 minutes in a public space, like, like a yeah. regular person. It's weird. You ever tried this? It is weird. It keeps the energy level up, though, is what I'm trying to get. Like, changing That's it up. It. I'll have to try it. Yeah, yeah. I find that if I do the right kind of work there, like, I can't be, like, super focused. It has to be kind of kind of light work. But I do, I do a certain amount of light work there. And just the change of vibe and location and all of that. And just really the ability that I can, I can actually legitimately work at a Starbucks is, I don't know, it just feels cool. Like, and it doesn't have to be a Starbucks. It could be, you know, Joe's right. Coffee or uh, if you're, you know, Wes, Wes likes to go to a, a local brew pub and uh, he just hangs out. They, he's, he's, no, that, that's more my... Uh, I know, speed. right? And it's down on the waterfront, the Seattle waterfront too. So he gets a table where you can look out at the water. They got Wi-Fi. I mean, the guy's got it. And he can walk there from his place. 
It's that's that's a setup. I mean, that West that West Payne, you know, he knows what he's doing. Now me, I'm just going to basic Starbucks here, but uh, it's worked for me for a little bit now. And I when I when I added this semi recently to my remote work regime, when I sat here, I'm thinking to myself, why am I at this desk? Right. I'm getting sleepy, and I I could take this la- the same exact laptop and I could go work somewhere else. And uh, th- I, the thing about that app on the star on the Starbucks thing, and there's probably other places that do this is there's no waiting. There's no lines. There's none of that fuss that I'm not a big fan of. Like when, when you order food with this app, you walk in and it's just right there on a hot plate waiting for you. And you just grab it. You say, thank you. And they say, thank you. And you go sit down and you leave. It's the best thing ever. Yeah. Isn't that great? So it's, that is pretty great. I have found that tweaking my remote work by er- about every other day or so, I'll go do this. And I've been doing it for about two weeks. I found that working outside can sometimes help. Yes. Like going on sure. if you have a backyard or a porch. But Sure. Sure. I'm also, one last thing I'm trying to do, and then I'm also trying to leverage a few more of the Google tools, which mm. I've resisted because it, you know, it's, but you know what? The thing is, is like, I'm already in on Google Apps because Linux Academy and Jupyter Broadcasting use Google Apps. And we use Google Docs to do this show. Right. And the other thing is, is it's getting ubiquitous. Everybody has a Google account. Family members, like when I go to a family thing or, you know, for Hadia, my fiance, she has a, everybody has a Google account, everybody. So if I want to share something with them, it's almost guaranteed I can share a doc or a photo or whatever. So yeah, I, I've, I have bit the bullet and I ordered myself one of those Google home hubs. Going to try that out. It's got the little calendar on there, you know. Now, will that and your HomePods have like a battle royale to I, the death? I hope so. I hope. I, that would be so amazing if when I'm not around, they're like, they're like fighting, fighting it, it out. Like packet wars, <laughs> sending, trying to send like ping of death to each other. <laughs> yeah, so, I'm going to give it a go. We'll see how it works, you know. And, and I've, I'm going to use the integration with Todoist, which is my to-do app of choice. To-do app. Mm-hmm. So can we talk about our least favorite topic again? Sure. I am, as you know, in the market for a workstation. Oh my because, goodness, this again. Yes, this again. There is an Apple event tomorrow, and System76 oh, yeah. is doing some very pretty videos while telling you nothing about the product they're going to ship, which is a interesting marketing strategy, classic. to say the least. Oh, classic. 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 I don't even want to know what these videos cost. So tomorrow, supposedly, there may be new iMacs and, oh, yeah, yeah, uh, right. and, and the new quote-unquote Pro Mac Mini. And I have been seeing a lot of excitement about the Pro Mac Mini, and I just want to maybe lower some expectations. <laughs> okay. Because if this computer indeed is, you know, announced and, like, released within a reasonable time frame after tomorrow, all it's going to probably be is a MacBook Pro high-end 13, low-end 15 in a little box, right? Um, so it's really not... I My guess is that it's just given history and that they're coming out with a Mac Pro and that the iMac Pro exists, it's not going to hit that sweet spot for most people, I think, listening to this show. 
Um, yeah, why not? I mean, you know, you put an i7 in that thing, you put a NVMe SSD in there. Uh, what, I think I mean, you want a GPU, right? Because I think otherwise you may as well just go with the laptop. Although I will say that I have come to the conclusion that laptops make terrible desktop replacements for the most part for me. I don't know that it's a big enough delta to to have that make sense. I don't know. I mean, I, I could almost see what you're saying. I guess I could see what you're saying on the GPU, but it seems like with with Thunderbolt and all of that stuff, that mm. there's other methods now to get yeah, that. Yeah, but the you mean the USB C stuff, the USB C. Yeah, Thunderbolt USB C. The whole ecosystem is so flaky and crappy right now. <laughs> like, what's the point? So then you have the idea of a bumped iMac, right? Which I think is maybe the more viable option because you can get like an Nvidia card, hopefully. Um, and it's, you know, a very nice 27 inch monitor. What if that doesn't exist, right? Apple's been super stingy with their hardware upgrades, unless you're willing to spend like $5,000. Sure. Am I, am I overly pessimistic? Because I've been responding to people with, I don't think the event is going to be what you want it to be. I thought this was going to be an iPad event. And I would say... Well, it is an iPad event. Right, yeah. but they also have Macs, yeah. I'd say it's a safe bet to keep lowered expectations. Um, if they don't update the Mac Mini, that is a tragedy. That's a tragedy. It's a travesty and a tragedy. And um, I wouldn't expect a lot on the iMac. For me, I, I feel like the iMac is fairly competitive. You just recently got the iMac Pro. We had the iMac Pro ship recently, and the iMac 5K isn't really that competitive. So you could see some updates there. You're not going to see any teasing for the Mac Pro. Um, I disagree on the Mac Mini. I don't think they need to make that much of an update to it. I think if they just basically ripped off the Intel NUC, people would be happy. The The Mini is a glue machine. It's not a, not a performance desktop. You stick it all yeah. together with the Mini. You know what I mean? And, it's the, yeah, uh, it's well, it's a media server for a lot of people, right? And you know, the iPad Pros. I'll be curious to see what they do there. Be curious to see. Again, well, those have already leaked completely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. USB C, they say, but that really could just be a USB C dongle in the box. For all we know, we don't really know. We'll have to wait and see tomorrow. And you know, oh, it, it all will be revealed, right? Because like we can speculate now, but really, <laughs> it's like literally tomorrow. Yeah. The show will be. Already stale. Yeah, we're probably, and then in two days, the, whatever the hell Thelio is. Probably would, no, it'll probably be today when this show's coming out. Well, anyways, that has been. Yeah. That has been. That was good. I liked that. You know, what? we should. We should. We should actually make this an official segment. Don't you think? Like we could call this. We could call this uh, lowered expectations with Mike. Lowered expectations. Yeah. What you, is that going to be the? I like it. You know what? I love it. There's all kinds of things I can. That'd be Next great, week, dude. Rust. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, anything else you want to uh, firebomb before we get out of here? You good? Uh, uh, I hope Twitter goes bankrupt. I don't know. Oh, oh. Uh, in the meantime, where can people find you on Twitter? <laughs> at Dumanuko. <laughs> <laughs> we are the worst. I'm at Chris LAS. The whole show and all its links is over at coder.show. Everything we talked about today, news items, things like that, coder.show slash 331. You can also go to coder.show slash subscribe for all the links to subscribe. You're catching the theme here, right? It's all over on our site. Like, say you want to send us some contact. Guess what? Coder.show slash contact. It's pretty fancy how that works, huh? 
Anyways, thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of the show. We'd love to see you live next time. Check the calendar. We may be recording next week's episode later this week. How does that work? I don't know. See you then. <laughs>